Hello there. We're trying to keep Coral Chihuahua going, and so we draw your attention to the possibility of listening to us on Patreon for just a few quid a month. This also magically gets rid of the ads. That's Patreon with an E, patreon.com forward slash Coral Chihuahua. On with the app. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to Coral Chihuahua. Bass low notes. Bass low notes. Oh, I'm still smiling at that bit, you know. But uh, anyway, I'm Harry Christophers and I'm here with Eamon Dugan. Hi, Eamon. Hello, Harry. And Robert Hollingworth. Greetings, Robert from York. Hello, buenos dias. <laughs> now, in this episode, we're going to be talking about recording. It's been a very important part of all our lives, uh, both as singers and as conductors. Um, so, come on, why do we do it? What's its purpose and how has it changed over the years? Well, I know why we used to do it, because it paid very well. Back in, I mean, you'll remember recording back in the 80s. I suppose I did a bit when I was at, uh, at New College, but commercially I became aware of it in the 90s and I was the fixer for the Finzi Singers and we were paid by Shandos Records to do a few CDs a year. And there was a very, very good living for singers and players just because the CD market was just burgeoning in those days. But these days, that has just disappeared. So yeah. I'm not quite sure why we do it these days, because it can be quite a painful process. It's an interesting experience, isn't it? I mean, it, it depends on how the, you know, what the venue's like, and you've got to have a good producer and a good engineer. But look, let's, let's start with a bit of uh, fun. Let's have a bit of music. Yeah, this, this actually is something that was absolutely no pain at all, because it was recorded totally live with an audience in 2003. Two years previously, we'd done a Commedia dell'arte disc in a studio with no audience. And I think it slightly died because we didn't have the audience. So when we came to record uh, a, a magical comedy from 1597, with English intros written by my friend Tim Knapman, we thought, let's do it in front of the Dartington Summer School audience. Uh, and it was a blast. And so here's, here's one of the episodes where Captain Cardon is attempting to woo the beautiful Isabella. Isabella, on love's skewer, now adopts the role of wooer. Thinking that her true love's dead, she says she'll have Cardon instead. And cutting short a longer story, he makes of her an inventory. As two lips in different red, as someone somewhere else once said, a smile like sunlit water ripples, not to mention gorgeous nipples. <laughs> A carriage pert 
a figure slim that from this day belonged to him. But Cardon shouldn't count his chickens, for this is where her plot she thickens. All is not lovely in this garden. The pretty girl has a facade on. She means to cheat both life and Cardon. She'll kill herself and without pardon, leave him alone with just his hard on. That note, perhaps we'd better have some music. Woof! <laughs> Fantastic, isn't it? 
Absolutely brilliant. And presumably that was Simon Callow or somebody doing a very good impersonation of him. Yes. Yeah, that's Simon Callow reading Timothy Knappman words, uh, along with a lovely crew of singers, Rachel Elliott, Richard Wynne Roberts, Julian Podger, Nicholas Mulroy, Giles Underwood, Stephen Devine and Elicio Quintero on instruments. And, and totally devoid of the sort of stresses and pressure that you normally get uh, in a recording session. But maybe we should say a little bit about what normally happens in a recording session. Yes, because, I mean, we'll come on to that live. I mean, it's very interesting, this live via the impersonal nature of, of the of the studio session, but we'll come on to that a, a, a lot later, maybe. Um, you know, maybe a lot of people, listeners, I think, just won't know what the whole process is of recording. I mean, Robert, just take us through in a real simple way. How do we, you know, what do we do? Well, apart from all the sort of planning beforehand, uh, we get to the venue. We hope that building work hasn't started uh, that morning. That's that's something we've all done. We've all turned up with packets of 20-pound notes, haven't we, when we're trying to stop someone even just cut their grass uh, that day. Because particularly with vocal groups, actually, the problem is that anything cuts through the sound. A car going past with an orchestra doesn't really matter. But with voices, especially if it's a passage for just sopranos and altos, car goes past that track is lost. Yeah, so, and a whole session could be wrecked, actually. I remember one occasion, years and years ago, St Jude's on the Hill, Hampstead Garden Suburb. It was a Saturday morning and everything was supposed to be wonderfully quiet. Lo and behold, the local council were doing the wheelie bill bin demonstration in the car park outside. And, <laughs> and that, that was it for the whole of the sessions. That was the introduction of wheelie bins in North London. Sorry, Robert, I introduced Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I missed out, of course, the, the rehearsal process. So you have a couple of days rehearsal. If you're really lucky, you'll have it in the venue that you're going to be singing in because, of course, that massively changes acoustics because singers, you know, play acoustics like you play a violin. Um, and then on the day of the recording, well, the engineer has got in there first. He set up his microphones, put his stuff in a control room so he can listen somewhere else away from the actual sound of the recording, preferably on speakers, not just on headphones. Um, and you get in there, you hope that no one's ill on the day of the recording to undo the rehearsal process. That can happen with singers. And off you go. And the first session, you think you might record about nine minutes music because it's the first session and you're still balancing um, and I suppose with a choir like the 16, you're probably going to have one set up for roughly for the three days. So once you've got a good balance, that's it. With Fagellini, it tends to change because one piece is for four voices and the next is for six. And maybe a couple of them have instruments. Um, and you you go, th you might try and do 12 minutes of music in the next three hour session, giving singers breaks. Where can they go for a cup of tea, coffee? Uh, the Strigio recording that we did back in 2009 was powered by cake provided by Fagellini friends. I think I mentioned last week, I'm sure that's the only reason we managed to get it onto one disc because it was all done on a sugar high. Uh, keeping morale up, um, that's, you know, crucial. Um, and, and you go through two or three days uh, doing it little bits by bits. What the producer tends to like is two full takes of the piece first and then... Uh, little patches, that bar 13 to 17, not, not the best in tune. So you tend to do little patches, which he will then or she will then drop into. Uh, in the old days, I remember Mike Skeet doing this with a razor blade. These days, it's all on clever um, uh, digital programs, Pro Tools or or, or whatever. Uh, and then three days later or two days later, that was it. And desperately hoping not to have police helicopters sitting over the top of the place, which we had once. The most expensive recording session I ever had, some of London's finest, and I could. the police helicopter was looking for a criminal, and it sat over the church of St. John's 
Norwood for 20 minutes and I could I could have just sat there burning 50 pound notes <laughs> yes we've all been there on those ones I mean it has changed a lot over the years though I mean of course I've been at this uh, game a lot longer than than the two of you and so it's you know it's it's well over 40 years um, mm. of recording and uh, of course you know when I started it was vinyl I'm not as old for as uh, you know 78s but anyway where you could only fit about sort of 20 20 to 20, 25 minutes music aside of of choral music especially if if, if the sopranos were going high apparently um, but of course you know it was it was great fun and unlike today or unlike the heyday of the of the 90s we did these recordings in a day i remember uh, we're going to hear a clip from one of these recordings in a minute um we had a rehearsal in st jude's on the hill hampstead garden sub- suburb on the friday night and we had six hours recording on the uh, on the saturday uh ted perry who who of course founded hyperion his then wife made us lunch uh and and that was it and we're now going to hear a little clip from one of that, that recording. It's Gaudete, a lovely little well-known Christmas piece. So that was Gaudete, sung by the 16. Um, on the uh, drum there was the chairman, the present-day chairman of the 16, Robin Bader, and uh, the the, the uh, soloist was the inimitable Nick Robertson, who who now lives in uh, Lisbon. Um, wonderfully atmospheric recording, as I say. You know that is that is 40, almost 40 years ago now, and. Um, those days of vinyl were, were wonderful. Um, you know, the covers, of course, were fantastic, mm. and particularly mm. Ted at Hyperion used to love his his beautifully vibrant oil paintings on the front of these covers. Um, you know, come along the advent of the CD and digital, and life completely changed, as you said earlier, Robert. You know, we started making money out of CDs. I mean, that's unheard of, um, and qu- quite quite incredible. Eamon, I mean, you of course you, you would have recorded things at uh, New College and. They would have been CDs, wouldn't they? Uh, they were, yeah. I mean, we've talked about vinyl here. Let, let's not forget the mighty cassette, uh, which, <laughs> was, which was was the you know the the linchpin of my of my teenage years. Um, you know, I used to. My sisters listened to, to lots of vinyl, but I had one of those tape to tape cassette recorders in my room, and I used to go to the local library and get cassettes out from there, and then you'd bring them home 
and then you'd record them yourself. I mean, all highly illegal, of course, but you know everyone did it. And then you'd make a copy of that for a friend of yours. And of course, the joy of making the mixtape, um, which was, you know, if there was someone who you had your eye on, you'd make her a mixtape. Um, no, you know, a, a sure route to success or not, as the case may be. <laughs> um, and, you know, you could tape things off the radio. It was wonderful. I mean, I can remember uh, recording a late night listening to, to Radio 3 one night, a, a, a live broadcast of, um, or a, a, a specially recorded uh, recital by a, pa- a pianist called Alan Gravel of Gurney's Piano Preludes. I mean, it's pretty obscure stuff. It became one of my most prized possessions. And, you know, I used to listen to these cassettes incessantly and literally yes. wear out. Yep. You know, that was the thing. You'd play it again and again and again. Um, and it was like that. It became like that with CDs as well. But CDs didn't really come into my focus until just before I went to university around 1993. But you mentioned the cassette. And actually, I remember, you know, doing lots of tapes of that. And your cassettes were, as you say, not necessarily just for to get girlfriends or something, but they were really varied. I remember I had a cassette and on the first bit. There was Ian Partridge singing a Monteverdi. I think it was Comfortable TB Domino or something. It was absolutely beautiful. And then I was followed by a piece of Bassoni. And then it, you know, it was a piece of Rolling Stones or something after that. So you had this sort of multi-mix, which, of course, people do today on Spotify. They just, you know... Um, uh, scramble music and all sorts of stuff comes out on shuffle um but you know that 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 the cd did change everything though didn't it yes and and specifically i mean everything was so clear and you could edit in ways you'd never been able to edit uh, before i'm I'm no specialist and and things have have changed and things have got but i do remember mike with his razor blade cutting 15 inch Mm -hmm. tape our first our first recording back in 1988 the week after my finals recital was done uh, just to put on tapes. It was recorded on 15-inch tape. Uh, and the, the, just watching him, how he did that, praying something back and forth, trying to find the exact place. And on, on CDs, that was different. My brother, who's a sort of hi-fi buff, didn't like it, and he carried on buying vinyl. He didn't like the, the what he perceived as the digital sound. But then we got into oversampling, um, which without going to... Uh, uh, too much technique is a sort of clever way of joining up the sort of digital blocks, if you like, things got so that I suppose most of us couldn't tell. I mean, it's back to the Flanders and Swan song. Do you remember the high high fidelity song where he says, um, these days people seem to be able to create the sound of an orchestra actually in their living room. Perfectly, I can't think of anything worse than having an orchestra in your living room. Um, and, and it was all about quality, quality, whereas now the quality is generally so good that it seems to be more about accessibility and 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 portability. Yeah, I mean, do we actually, when we record, do we have a recorded sound in mind? Do we have something that we want to sort of achieve? I used to listen, to, as I said, to you know, to recordings avidly when I, when I was younger. Um, and uh, a really seminal recording for me was uh, one by the Corridon Singers. You mentioned Hyperion, uh, the record label Hyperion, Harry. They they formed a very important part of my life uh, for many years now. And um, the Corridon Singers, uh, conducted by Matthew Best, made a recording back in 1983 of the Vaughan Williams uh, G Minor Mass and the Howl's Requiem. Uh, and this that sound world uh, was something that it just struck such a chord with me. And and I always thought, you know, if should I ever end up directing my own group, that's the kind of sound I'd like to I'd like us to be uh, the kind of sound world that I'd like us to be inhabiting. 
Salvato Mundi, the first movement of Howells' Requiem, sung by the Corridon Singers, conducted by Matthew Best. Um, Harry, you mentioned Hyperion's uh, wonderful artwork. If you've never seen the cover to that particular uh, recording, it's an extraordinary historic photo of Gloucester Cathedral called the Lighthouse in the Vale, this wonderful sort of monochrome uh, grey and white with the sun breaking through the clouds. Definitely worth looking at and recorded in the church of St. Alban the Martyr uh, in Hoven. Um, and I said that that was a sound world that I'd always like to try and replicate. And St. Alban the Martyr is where we've made many discs with the 16 and I think is certainly the, my favourite venue for recording a cappella music. It's fabulous, isn't it? I mean, on that recording, I mean, I've, I've got that LP as well. The LP is up in the loft and the CD is actually downstairs in the, in, in the kitchen. Um, but uh, Matthew, of course... Uh, is a wonderful singer anyway as as, as well and it, that comes across in that that performance and the lovely thing about that for me is that my wife Lonnie is singing on that because Matt, the Corridon Singers was full of sort of ex-choral scholars friends who come down for university but a marvellous mix of amateur and semi-pros and just a, a great great um, great sound world and that you know that's what's so important in it Robert you know this the sound world I mean sound that's what recordings is all about well, um, or, or is it? I mean, yes, mm -hmm. I mean, I think the, the fact is that it absolutely is. And it has learned, it has taught us to go to a concert and to expect the same thing. I think that's the, the difficulty I have with it. When you hear one of these, you know, recordings by the Talis Scholars or the 16, which is seemingly so perfect, amazing tuning, uh, glorious acoustics, probably you had to wait, you know, 40 minutes to stop the circular saw outside to get that moment. The trouble is you go to a concert and you expect it to be the same. And, and reviewers are particularly harsh on this, I think. Uh, uh, and, you know, concerts aren't perfect. Concerts are live, passionate experiences, you hope. Uh, and I do think that the that recordings have taught us to, to, to certainly raise our standards. And now when we get to a concert, we know that there are expectations but um, it's it's created problems as well because of course we are listening to something that's a little bit false because it's not a single performance. Um, ha have you ever done? I mean, at those early days, Harry, you say that you know you had a day to put something together. There can't have been time to do four or five versions of each. Oh no, bit. there weren't. There weren't at all. And but you know, it's interesting. I, I say to people today, you know, come and hear us in concert because it will be better. It's really funny, isn't it? Because I, I think. You know, this was the whole thing about the CD that actually, when it started, we needed, to, we all thought we needed to seek perfection. And people buying those CDs also wanted perfection. And you, you mentioned that sort of recording process of, of fine tuning everything. But, um, you know, over the years for me, I've sort of thought, actually, I just want, I want our recordings to feel human. And I don't, I, I, you know, I, and the difficulty, mm -hmm. and I'm sure you're the same, and, and Eamon as well, that, you know, the difficulty is to work out, you know, okay, there's a rough edge there, something's not quite in tune, not something coming in, not quite together, but can it, can it bear repeated listing? Uh, if we sort of amend it and make it all absolutely perfect, are we then destroying the nature of the piece? And it's a real, it's a fine, it's a fine balance. And I, and I think, um, you know, the CD, the advent of the CD did, a, in a way, a lot of damage to the way we perceive music, I think. Yes, because the process itself can become so, 
Oh, ainly retentive is the only word I can think of. You know, you get one little bit and you end up saying, we only need this one bar. And the more you focus on that one bar, the harder harder it becomes, the more of your brain space that particular F sharp takes up. And it can be that can be a pretty soulless thing. Uh, and the pressure, I mean, you look at these wonderful singers that can take that pressure to do that bar, especially when it's a little bit of solo work. It's one thing recording leader. It's another thing to be in your choral brain and have to do four bars of solo just like that. So, ugh, yes, it's a, yeah. it's a, it's not a perfect beast. I think it's, it puts a lot of pressure, actually, onto the producer and the engineer. And uh, at least for, I'm lucky because I've had the same producer and engineer for years and years. Mark Brown produces my catch engineers. Um, and that, it, for me, is a great team. Uh, but I, I sort of hear of other groups and I look at other things that are happening where sometimes you find that the producer is sort of dictating the sort of sound he wants. And I remember having an experience with this, again, early days of the CD, with we, we recorded for Virgin Classics. And um, this particular producer wanted a seamless sound from us. And actually, all it did was sort of wind up the singers. It wound up me. We weren't performing to our best ability. Um, because he was just wanting a sound, I was wanting words, and I was wanting, you know, to, to, to you know, to hear the wonderful sonorities of, of the sixteen coming through. But that wasn't in the producer's uh, realm. And you hear of um, other producers, you know, just um, working so much technology into it that actually it it ceases to be to be what the artists have actually doing in yes. the, in the place. Yeah, I work a lot, not exclusively, but I work quite a bit with Adrian Hunter. And I think he's he's excellent. He really knows the world. And he's absolutely trying to get what you want and to help you to get that. But I do sometimes, you know, you, you, I do feel for him. Back in 2010, I think we made the first recording of Strigio's 40-part mass. And that was an enormous job with five choirs, 66 people recording, some of really the world's finest singers and players all in the same room, you know, vile concerts that had never played together before and half the Talis Scholars and some 16 Sings and Stile. All, it, was, it was wonderful. And that was fine because outside noise wasn't really going to get in the way of that. But of course, this is the way of recording sessions. Uh, you, you try and lose people as quickly as possible to save money. So you start with the 60 part piece and then the 40 and then you're getting down to the sort of eight voice magicals. And we finished up and I thought this was very clever when I planned it with two, with two lutes and a lirone. It's a sort of cello like instrument with 13 strings, but plays very, very softly. But what I hadn't thought through was this was Friday night in South London. <laughs> Ouch. And, Ouch. And, and we were trying to record two lutes with ambulances and police going everywhere. And, and I gave up in the end. And I just left it to Adrian. And actually, that's the little track we're going to hear now, because I never understood how he managed to get this quiet, tiny sounding thing out of all the distractions of a Friday evening in London.
sitting there, hearing that last note, desperate for another ambulance not to go past. The lightning fingers there of David Miller and Linda Saison Lutz and Erin Headley playing Lerone in a piece by um, the father of uh, Galileo, Vincenzo Galileo. Um, and so all credit to Adrian Hunter for putting that together. But producers, they have to be they have to be pretty good human beings. They have to be pretty good, not just at their job, but at managing people and uh, and keeping everyone's spirits up, don't they? That's right. It's such a crucial role. Uh, need a wonderful set of ears, of course, and to be uh, you know uh, all over the technology. But you're absolutely right. It's that um, ability because the feedback uh, that the singers uh, or instrumentalists are receiving during a recording, how that's delivered can be absolutely crucial to sort of setting the tone uh, of the session. Uh, and as you say, if you if you have a producer who's comes across as maybe sort of persistently negative, uh, it can very quickly uh, change the atmosphere in the room. It's one of Mark Brown's uh, many strengths, but his wonderful understated uh, manner when uh, when he's giving us feedback uh, is is a joy to a joy to behold, and just it just always leaves us smiling. Absolutely, I mean, Mark has so many extra qualities as well because his knowledge of text and 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 indeed Latin as well is phenomenal. So he also gives an added sort of. Uh, something extra to a to a session and advice about what he's giving but you're quite right Eamon I it's it's particularly with singers it's very important that stress is taken out and uh and but there's got to be that amazing element of trust hasn't there from from conductor and singers to to producer and engineer and mm. I, I remember in the past sitting in on some very big orchestral things and uh just finding uh you know this this tension between the producer and the conductor and that was really it was it was so awful really that uh, you just felt the musicians when they were hearing this sort of these arguments happening over the over the tannoy um really horrendous um, and thank goodness I, i've never had to uh, yeah I don't think that happens so much in our world, doesn't it? Because it's so much more collaborative. We all understand that we're here to do a job and our job is as important as the, you know, the conductor and the producer and each singer. We're, we're equally valid. And I think, you know, most good producers work that, understand that. And, and one doesn't work with a producer if, if they're not like that. It, it's, fu it's fully collaborative. One, one thing I'd say is about the, the, the sheer Englishness of it all, and apologies to Welsh, Scottish, Americans, others, uh, but the course, it, it, it in England, we never say what we mean. And so we're constantly reading between the lines. And Aid Hunter's like this. He'll say, you know, I, I, I wonder whether that was just, just slightly, slightly you know, south of the border or something, by which he means it's horrendously flat or something <laughs> like this. And, and then, and then you, ne you never quite know what they mean. And you end up, you know, what is it? Nicholas Morris is very British problems. That's it's another aspect that uh, Northern, Europe, Northern Americans coming to work with British groups find sometimes. What does he mean? Yeah, you're absolutely correct, and uh, um, the venue is so important, I think, for, for for singers especially because you need something that is giving some sort of ambience back. There's nothing worse than being in a studio, and I remember um, doing a, a a Christmas CD with Hand on Hand Society in Boston, and uh, because it was um, uh, assisted by um, WGBH, the the radio company, they they said, "Well, you could have our studio. Well, it's a wonderful studio, but there's no." ambience it's not like St Albans Hoban so everything had to be added on um, and it, that was a really fine balancing act for me for, for a group that hadn't done much recording and one of the things I made them do straight away was come into the box and listen to the playbacks as many as they could because I would say something and they really wouldn't believe it and then they came in and listened 
and they think, oh my goodness me, is that really what we're doing, Harry? It's That's awful. We're going to rectify that straight away. And it's it's fascinating. So I think that, that for me, is a very important part of recording and uh, something we do in 16 sessions, isn't it, Eamon? I, I mean, you, you, you come as another pair of ears to listen to everything as well, but we try and get as many of the choir into into the uh, the, uh, the studio box to actually listen to that take, and they learn so much from it. I think that's right. It, it's so important if you've got the time um, to be able to go and you know to go and listen to takes uh, once you've made them, because you do you learn so much from those. You know, we've talked about how um, wonderfully um, smoothing someone like Mark can be. A- another really revealing part of the process, though, is if you're not actually in a piece to sit in the recording box <laughs> with the producer and the engineer and listen to what they're saying when the talkback mic isn't on. <laughs> then you, you, you hear you see a whole different side of things because you, you say, just you know, just as you say, just a little bit south of the border, the you know the feedback, the talkback mic goes off and say, well, that was just rankly out of tune, and you, you know you hear <laughs> how that you know what the engineer and producer are actually saying between between themselves. Yeah. I can't get that bit together. That's the fourth time he's done it, you know. <laughs> it goes on. Yeah. I mean, in a way, that's the beauty of uh, recording, that, of course, we can patch uh, little bits in. I mean, Eamon, uh, uh, for you as a, as a singer, um, recording sessions, I mean, what, what do you think about them? I mean, do you feel, do you go into them thinking, okay, I know if I do a bum note there or it's a bit out of tune that I, I can always do it again, or... Do you go in with a feeling that right? I'm going to try. I'm going to do my best on every single take, um, and and then by doing that, you think, goodness me, I've sung for the last three hours nonstop at full, my full commitment. I, I'm knackered. Um, what, you know, what's your sort of process that you go yeah, through? It's that's a, it's a really good 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 question. Actually, I, I think I quite. I enjoy the journey, you know, you're trying to, because it, it is a journey from when you start recording a piece to the end of it, you know, you hope that you're going to improve with each take, you know, if you're, if you are doing uh, patches, then, you know, you've got specific areas that you can look at that you're trying to improve upon. And so hopefully you can, you can see, have a sense of the progress of it and the journey. Um, it's not a medium that I've always particularly enjoyed. Well, I mean, I was going to say, are, are there singers who who prefer it? I mean, there are people like John Milsom, the architect um, uh, in 16th century music, who says it's a wonderful medium because, of course, you can get an intimacy to it. But I don't know many singers who would prefer to, to do that than a concert. I think we'd all prefer to be doing concerts, wouldn't we? Do you know, I think it's interesting there because I yes I, I totally agree and I think for but I think for for singers and singers of the ilk that that we use uh, recording has become such a sort of um, part of their life that we're mm. very adept at it adept at it what is very different is for soloists and and for soloists who haven't necessarily had that experience and the ones that I've recorded like that most of them hate coming to listen back to themselves and they get very uh, wound up by it. One major exception was a member, Anne Murray, who just went on and on and on. She said, Harry, I'm just enjoying what I'm doing. Let's go recording another three hours, please, another three hours here. And she was absolutely <laughs> staggering. Um, I mean, Eamon, interesting, because you, you've, you of course, sung numerous solos for various people and and, and for me, especially on, on an Indian Queen one. So what's it like for you to go back into that box and hear you as, you know, as the soloist there? 
Well, I think probably most singers would say that they're never happy uh, with what they hear because you, and I think this is one of the stresses uh, of recording is you, the pressure comes because you're thinking, you know, this is going down for posterity. And you mentioned, you know, something bare repeated listening. If there's something that you're unhappy with, uh, you know, it really doesn't bear repeated listening. But, you know, one is always one's own harshest critic. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I don't tend to listen to my own recordings um, as a rule uh, because when I do, it just makes me wince. You you hear all the infelicities. Um, you know, you can probably think back to the sessions as well and think, well, you know, I wasn't happy with that at the time, and and it's and it still rankles with me now. I, I think at the end of the day, you've got to, as you say, trust in the producer and and just put it to one side and think, well, you know, this is part of the job, and uh, if I'm not happy, that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, everyone else isn't going to be. Yeah, and you've got to keep performing, haven't you? You've got you've got to not think, oh, I've just got to get that in tune. You've got to keep that performance energy up, especially you know, especially in a, in a solo piece. It has to be that same level of energy, and and not totally focusing on the detail. Yeah, absolutely right. Otherwise, then it becomes sterile. Hmm. Yeah, the trick as a conductor as well when you're there in the session is that you know you've gone through the patches of that little bit, and then you'll say, well, actually, I just need that that third or fourth bar again. Uh, so you start from the beginning, and then actually you run the whole aria, and it's probably the best take of the whole aria. Hmm. Hmm. Can we hear Eamon singing something then? Yeah, you're brilliant in it. <laughs> Full, full, full of death. 
did add his pride. I the crest did add his pride that along the cliffs to glide. By thy visage, by thy visage, fierce and black. By the death's head on thy back. By the twist. Sabbath's placed for a god round thy waist. By the hearts of gold that deck thy breast, thy shoulders, and thy Yeah, I can see why you wouldn't be happy with that, Eamon. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> it was brilliant. That was you twice. You twice ten hundred deities for the <laughs> Indian for the Indian such, Queen. It's such a tongue twister, isn't it? You twice ten hundred deities from the Indian Queen. Yes, Eamon Dugan and the sixteen. Um, uh, just fabulous days recording. I love recording Purcell, and uh, um, that was done up in. Uh, St. Augustine's Kilburn, probably my most favourite church to record in because it's got a, a fantastic uh, tale on the sound. Uh, look, I think, guys, we need to sort of hold these thoughts and uh, we'll continue this uh, fascinating subject in the next episode. So, look, lovely chatting to you both. If you liked what you've heard, please spread the word. You can find us on your podcast networks or via our respective websites. We're actually going to close with a bit of Messiah. Um, it's both versions are done by the 16, um, 20 years apart. 
Uh, one was recorded in 1986 from uh, three live performances at St. John's Smith Square. So this is And He Shall Purify. And the second one was done in 2008. Exactly the same, same piece. Just see which one you prefer.
double dose of Messiah. How many differences could you spot? There is no prize. Uh, Call Chihuahua is brought to you by Ifagellini in the 16, and it's produced by Perseus, the 16, Ifagellini and Polyphonic Films. It's supported using public funding by the National Lottery through Arts Council England, and this episode was further sponsored by Kim Nguyen, who I'm pretty sure is the conductor of the European Bach Ensemble. If you'd like to sponsor an episode, please get in contact with us through Ida Ensemble. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Just before you go, another reminder to try listening on Patreon, which costs just a few pounds per month. Or, if you prefer, you can very simply make a one-off donation. You can actually do either via choralchihuahua.com. Thanks.